Does that sound okay, everybody? It does. It sounds mm. excellent. Excuse me, my phone up there. My wallet. Your wallet is. Your keys are. Your phone is not. Do you remember that time that Hector got into your wallet? <laughs> I, my not cuts discount card still carries the scars. And I tell the story every time I get my discount. They say, what happened there? And I say, a dog of a famous writer. I put it down somewhere. Do you want me to shoot it? And they think it's Ian Rankin, so I don't tell them any different. Quite is right, it, too. Is it noisy at the moment? Yes, or is Lee Child's dog chewed it. Let's um, let's just not worry about it and say it could happen at any moment. Oh, you worried that it'll ring? It's in the room, I just heard it. Chinch has stolen it. Scumbag. It's quite nice to do this in here. It's very nice. Yeah. I have a lovely view. Lovely, massive, big window. I know, but we keep the blinds. That's like saying top, top. We like we're in South Carolina doing the podcast. We keep the blinds shut because, because, lovely. because of the Not street. Not at the moment because of the flooding. Um, no, they were already here. We put everything else in. Not the fireplace. We put the. By everything else, I meant these Did two. Did you put the television in? Yes, that's our, very much our TV. Were, they, were the walls already here? The walls were yeah, here. That yeah. keeps, the, keeps the room intact, really, doesn't it? Does it keeps, it keeps it in shape. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, the blinds were already here. They're very nice. But I do quite like having this window open. It's just that it seems a bit sort of intrusive. Everyone can kind of see you. See your business. And there's That's a man who wanders into the living room naked often. <laughs> I want people to see us. Have you? Are you going to put your headphones on, Steve, or are you just going to have this conversation? <laughs> you are such a rebel. Such a rebel. <laughs> Steve is going to permanently sound like there a small go. man in a box. Uh, good. Hugh, how was your holiday? Um, it was lovely, thank you. We had a super time. Um, and we uh, met many new people. Uh, we went to many new countries. We culturally learnt many, many new things. Many new countries. Which countries did you go to then? Um, actually, only two. Yeah, that's not many. No, that's two. So we got one of these. Have you got one of those maps? Have you seen those maps where it's the map of the world and you can scratch off where you've been? I am aware of them, but do not have one. So we have one in the room that nobody goes into, um, and we. That sounds uh, ominous. <laughs> only because we never have any guests, because not just there's we bodies don't, in there. Don't have any friends, but the um, I have a policy which my wife does not share of being able to get rid of the whole country when you've just been to a small part of it, which works very well when you've been to Hong Kong because I am now scratching off the whole of China. No, that's cheating. Go. We went to Bali. Whole of Indonesia. <laughs> gone. So, well, hang on, what's like Gemma's policy? 8% of the world is going to be gone. So, if Gemma had only been to, for example, Stockholm, would she refuse to cross off? Would she just find Stockholm and scratch it off? No, I think, I think she, would, she would allow that for Sweden. Okay. But I think if it's either an archipelago and you right. go to one particular island in that archipelago or a protectorate... Oh, be quiet. <laughs> what are you talking about? Do you know what an archipelago is? Yes. Then it's a you know what I'm jutty about. bit of land. No, it's not. It's kind of. You're thinking but of a peninsula. You're thinking of a peninsula. Ah, I always get those two mixed up. An archipelago is <laughs> loads of islands. <laughs> is it? Loads of islands. Ah, I thought it was. Indonesia uh, is an archipelago of many, many, many mm. islands. But the long yeah. winter evenings must really fly with you two scratching off your uh, <laughs> your maps. Cool, what, what a life you live. Like arguing over life. how much of it they're allowed to scratch. Oh. What were your four favourite things? My four favourite things um, were my wife... Um, and her company, um, oh, her sense of humour, and her ability to read three books during a holiday, which meant that I didn't really have to talk to her very much. Uh, what were your four favourite things that you did on holiday, or that you saw? <laughs> I loved Hong Kong. I loved the Tagalalang rice terraces. Okay. Um, I uh, loved white water rafting down the Ayung River. Oh. Good river. 
one of the and it was very peaceful, not really white watery river. That's quite um, adventurous for you, Hugh. Very Although I got I got very sunburnt um, because I turned up with a t-shirt that I was going to wear underneath my life jacket. Very sensible. Mm. But the guy said you're going to get wet, so if you want your t-shirt to get wet. Um, then fine, keep it on. But basically, would laugh at me the whole time for doing so. Mm. So because the other people in the boat were all Australians and rock hard, I um, <laughs> I decided to take off my t-shirt. What I, what I didn't realise is that then, obviously, I had not sun creamed every last part of me. And you are made of alabaster. And I'm so made of alabaster. Bound to burn. So I I burnt extraordinarily. Did your um, wife consider her choices when she saw what she could have won? <laughs> <laughs> what in the Australian grand prize draw for husbands? Uh, no, they they weren't the best of. I weren't the best of the Australian male. More or less Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, that's not four things. That's three things, I think. Fourth, fourth thing, beer. Bintang beer. Okay. Um, I'm a particular fan of Southeast Asian beers. They are excellent. They're mm-hmm. exactly what I like to drink. Uh, so, yes, that's the fourth thing. Very good. I feel like I was a little more thorough than actually anybody listening. No, intended you're talking to about terraces, rivers and beers. You're just making words up. Do these things actually exist? Rory's going, oh, yeah, good river. Do you actually know the river he's talking about? My favourite ever line in an interview ever was from an interview by the excellent Tim Rich, who we all know, writes for The Independent. Very funny Uh, Tim Rich. The equally excellent Phil Brown, former Hull City manager, in which uh, Phil Brown used the immortal line, I draw great strength from rivers. And I'm just wondering whether all of Hughes were liquid-based. So maybe you draw water from rivers. Draws but, great uh, strength from liquids. From rivers. Yeah. I, I also went to a mm. um, uh, a temple where you take a a dip in the um, the, the the sacred springs, mm-hmm. which are there. Uh, Bali, even though Indonesia is a Muslim country, Bali is a Hindu island. Uh, so it's wonderful. And I and I thought, uh, in the spirit of things, I should I should get involved along with all those other people who are there following um, the uh, storyline of Eat, Pray, Love, uh, which is yes. essentially all those people who are doing that kind of thing. I was not, but I thought culturally it would be interesting to take part. Uh, Gemma did not want to, um, but she kind of saw me fumble around as I got into my sarong, the sarong that you can get wet. And I went into this uh, this beautiful spring, and I went along, and you you just follow the the kind of the path of about five fountains where you you stand under and you are doused by the water from the, the sacred springs. And then I got out and, and Gemma said, I think you were the only male in there. I wonder if that's the fertility pool. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, to which I said, yes, and I am fully pregnant. So you went in the fertility pool while Gemma went off, had a barbecue with 18 Australians. <laughs> This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. The food is forthcoming thanks to a trip by Rory Smith's wife to Tesco earlier on today. So that's to come. We have, however, been in the meantime serviced with homemade cookies. Yes, that I made. That you made in this home. I want to make it very clear that Kate and I share the go into the supermarket responsibilities. And in fact, this morning, she volunteered because she refused to go yesterday. She said she couldn't be bothered. We are also in a different location in Rory's house. We are in the front room. Yes. Drawing room, if the you will. The good room. The good room, which is being uh, shone upon by some wonderful sunshine, and it is very pleasant. So thank you for welcoming into what has heretofore been a very private place. It's a, it is. It's our special room. It's our adult room. Oh, the, God. What happens in here? <laughs> we watch TV. What are the oh, four things phew. that you'd like most about we, this room? Um, no, so it does, as, as, in fact, you and Steve will know, but... Not yet, Hugh. Although, if the fertility fertility pool works, <laughs> you never know. Uh, Could be nice. Obviously, the rest of our house is covered head to toe in bright green plastic nonsense uh, that is meant to entertain Ed, but in fact only keeps his attention for ten to fifteen seconds per piece. Um, this room is is exempt from that and is re- retained 
for grown-ups. Ed proof. It's, it's not Ed proof. He's allowed in. It's not. It's not kind of forbidden. But he, we, we, di- we, we don't necessarily bring him in here to play too much. The dog likes it though. Does he? He can sit on the sofa. We, um, we had the same policy early on. Did not with work. Our children. So good luck keeping that in place. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are three people who, like any work colleagues, will now receive gifts from their returning vacationer. So inside this bag, um, to Steve Wyeth, can I offer you this? A T-shirt labelled with the aforementioned Bintang beer. I was really hoping for a bottle of Bintang beer, but uh, I will gladly accept the T-shirt. Thank you very much. To Rory Smith, can I please offer you this? A T-shirt labelled with the glorious aforementioned Bintang beer, even though you don't drink beer. Have we done some sort of sponsorship? <laughs> no. Well, it's a three-for-one deal. I don't think it's even available. Um, so, Andy Hinchcliffe, um, because you're not a beer drinker, no. and because I couldn't find a large enough T-shirt, mm. um, and because you have just arrived from the gym and you go to the gym a lot, I thought it would be suitable for you to have some athletic wear. Sarong, sarong, sarong. Here is your oh. barley singlet. Nice. Wow. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Look at that. Wow. I need to see pictures of you pumping some sort of iron dressed in that. Do you know the kind of looks I'm going to get from Big Reg, Dave and Nigel, the, the big weightlifters? They're going to think I'm slightly strange. <laughs> that is the quintessential Suns Out. Whoa, out yeah, really, that is outstanding. That and is, that that is extraordinarily good. <laughs> that is a small. Small? <laughs> You're joking. I, tr- I, t- I, tried it. I tried it on myself and I thought it's five times too big. It's for Chinch. Will we be tweeting a picture of Chinch we- wearing that? Yes, I'll hopefully uh, I'll get Trouble is, it's my, my tan few- line. That's the only problem. I don't wear vests because I have a tan line and if you put a vest on, it exposes the shoulders, which of course are massive, but they're white compared to the brown arm. You wouldn't have that problem if you always wore vests. Yes, but that's the. When do you start wearing? When that's do you true. wear vests? When you, you wander out, when you get vest, like an idiot. A gift of a vest ah. from a very so kind. So start now, or if you're an Australian. Uh, um, I need to apologise actually. I didn't get for? your presents from Russia or Italy. Uh, that's fine. You were only away for two months. You didn't have the time. Um, you can get in touch with the program. In fact, if you follow us on Twitter, you'll be able to see a picture of Annie Hinchcliffe with the guns out. Whether the sun is out in your life or not, it will certainly shine a light. Absolutely. On his impeccable taste. Um, that's at Set Piece Menu on Twitter. Set menu at gmail.com is our email address or on Facebook you can search set piece menu we are of course one of Deezer's podcasts of 2017 a title only discovered in late 2018 but still uh, this email is coming from a Reese Griffiths dear SPM while in the employ of Deezer as their UK podcast editor, it fell to me to compile my choice of the podcast of 2017. So what a delight to hear this list mentioned two weeks running, now three weeks running, on the show. I can confirm that I am a regular SPM listener and have listened to more than six podcasts allowing me to adequately judge your work against the competition. <laughs> Keep up the excellent work. Uh, says Reese. A lot of response um, actually has come in via social media and also an email to our last two episodes so you can check them out right now. They were The Anatomy of a Pundit and then What is Beautiful Football? Uh, firstly, our Chinch seminar on co-commentary uh, prompted this from Andy Brown. Hi to Steve and Hugh and others. I recently Ooh. listened to the co-commentator episode of your good podcast on a long drive. <laughs> <laughs> 
slightly concerned about that. I am a regular listener and contributor, he says in brackets. Buffalo status would be lovely, but I couldn't possibly make such a presumption. And Andy Chinch Hinchcliffe has long been set up as the comedy figure in the podcast, the one who normally does little research and the others take the mickey out of. This said, the co-commentator's episode, driven by Chinch, was truly excellent and it was very refreshing to hear the thought that he puts into his work. I also totally agree that the wider public should rightly expect more from co-coms and pundits in general, and it really frustrates me when people tell me uh, what has happened. I've seen that. Tell me why it happened. Tell me something I don't know. That is your job! He ends rather aggressively. Um, Our good friend Perrin Dixon, who following this email, is now bestowed with the honoured title of Buffalo. Congrats, Perry. We need a bell or something, don't we? We do need some sort of sound effect. Some sort of buffalo. Can we have the... Uh, what's the bull zone? Mm, should we have something like oh, that? That would be better, wouldn't <laughs> it? Although that yeah. will be trademarked. Uh, that well, is it? true. That is yeah. true. It won't be. Jim Even now, all these years afterwards. Um, my biggest hate in football media, says Perrin, is pundits, comms and co-coms getting laws of the game, basics and terminology wrong. This season so far, I'm constantly hearing things like, yes, yeah, not a yellow card, it's just reckless. It's just the way he's written it. I don't think he's a Cockney. It's just the way he's written it. A reckless tackle is, by definition, says Perrin, a yellow card, just like a dangerous tackle is a red card, and a careless foul is just a free kick. These words are actually in the official laws of the game. Perhaps I'm just the horrible combination of pedant and referee. Also, just generally, there are a lot of in-match comms and co-coms who clearly have a poor grasp on the laws, even basic ones such as offside, and they're completely unaware of how referees are instructed to interpret rules. The confusion pundits have about the handball rule, for example, is one I find particularly hilarious. Studio pundits less so, as I assume they've had someone on the crew preventing them from making silly errors on live television. I would bet, and it's something I want to do this year, I bet most players don't understand what the handball rule is as well. They, the, he's completely right. But the handball rule is not the co-com's fault, the, the pundit's fault, or, the, or anyone's fault. They have messed around with that rule so much they, that I would say 99.9% of people have no idea what it actually is. And crucially, probably more, more accurately, what the interpretation is that yeah. leads to it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that one is quite understandable. And to an extent offside as well, does that, they mess about with that constantly as well. The rules might be written down, but the guidelines yeah. that referees are given as to how to interpret them is not shared with the with the wider public or the media. But also at the World Cup, the VAR, clearly the players had no idea how the no. VAR system works and even the pundits in the studio didn't even understand. They think, oh, the referee's got to go to VAR. No, it doesn't work like that. Again, they just understand. the rule. But that's the when you're a former player doing the, the co-commentary. You have to understand that you're not a referee, so you've got to learn and speak to referees about how they judge things and that's the only way to do it players in, players in Germany where they're into the second season of VAR are still doing the yeah. box in the air <laughs> yeah and finally on this from Jake Bays dear amongst others Rory and Andy it was really Perfect. interesting to hear Chinch's insight on the anatomy of a pundit if my experience of following football is anything to go by the conversation that either discusses agreement with the pundit's point of view or evaluates the quality of their input is all too common but it's rare to hear anything like it from within the industry so thank you he says I'm sure with that kind of earnest tone that I provided uh, for Jake. I was particularly intrigued by the idea that what makes a great pundit or co-coms um, able to excel is that they watch the game differently. I think this backs up something I've said for a while, that the best ex-player pundits are those who played in defence. E.g. Lee Hello. Dixon, Gary Neville, amongst others. Since their job <laughs> was to read the play of others right and react accordingly, rather than just control and strike the ball as best they can. I'd be interested to know if Chinch feels that his illustrious career at left-back has better prepared him 
to read the game, to allow him to be a better pundit than his peers who perhaps played out their career only scoring goals up front. There, there does seem to be a lot of defenders doing this, but I never... Well, if you saw me play, clearly I didn't read the game very well. But it's just something as I got into the business and then realised if this is the challenge, if this is what they want you to do, you have to watch the game differently. And I'm sure during the episode I challenged people to watch a game without watching the ball. You did. It's incredibly hard to do because as a fan as a normal person and not someone as experienced and talented as me, you um, you naturally watch the ball, which is, you miss everything. So there you are, people. Try and do it and see how much you don't enjoy the football match when you do it that way. <laughs> on Beautiful Football, at Molyneux Musings on Twitter says, if you want to define beauty in football, which is what we tried to do last week, you'd argue it's something that is rarely seen, difficult to execute and delivers a positive result. Anything that doesn't hit that kind of criteria is not deserving of the title Beautiful. Case closed. Uh, says Molyneux Musings. Unfortunately, it's not. So Charlie Morgan adds this. Agree wholeheartedly that there seems to be an emphasis on teams playing beautiful football to attract fans and drive revenues. From personal experience, I got drawn into watching Syria A solely because I'd seen Napoli play some bloody sumptuous stuff on occasion. <laughs> and an email from Daniel Pountney. Hi, Chief Buffaloes, which is a title that I'm sure we all very much appreciate. I thoroughly enjoyed the latest SPM podcast and wanted to contribute my view. I've never really liked top team possession based football. I can see why it's called beautiful as it is an art when the incisive pass is finished. But my favourite football is the football that gets me off my seat. This is usually a wonder goal or my particular favourite, a ruthless counterattack. It provides seat ejecting suspense that no other philosophy can match, in my opinion. My prime example is probably to everyone's disdain. But my favourite version of football is peak. Get this. Jose Mourinho. By this I mean his Real Madrid team of 2011-2012. While incisive passing is a beautiful thing, so is one-touch passing by pure instinct. Granted, he had the players he needed to achieve this, but that's no different to Klopp with his style and Pep with his. Every pass with a ruthless counter has to be perfect or near perfect. The type of passes where the defender stretches and is just out of reach or falls over attempting to stop it or bypasses four players in an instant. It usually ends with a one-on-one or tap-in and I always hope for the one-on-one. The ultimate test of open play, composure for a player. Maybe counter-attacking football is not everyone's cup of tea, but it's my Yorkshire heavily brewed, lightly skimmed, milk, no sugared cup of tea. Not to everyone's taste, but to my taste. Well, you should obviously always be drinking Yorkshire tea. There's no other type of tea. But I would have said, that's interesting, and it kind of bears up what we were talking about, but I wouldn't necessarily have said that that Real Madrid team was the best example of that. I would instead look at the early vendor teams at Arsenal, who were brilliant counter-attacking teams, and used to be used to finish games after 20 minutes. They'd be 3-0 up. The opposition would be punch-drunk and hopeless, and Arsenal would have caught them three times on the break. That was how that Arsenal team played. And where Vendor went wrong was that he then thought, right, actually I want to dominate possession, and never quite got it right. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh on that Real Madrid team. The class goes against Barcelona, where they eventually figured it out and played better. The way that they beat the press was was particularly impressive, mm. and they were dynamic. And it was the season I think that they played Manchester City in the uh, group stage of the Champions League, rather than one where they played mm. them in the semi final. The way that they put Cristiano Ronaldo essentially about ten yards from the halfway line every time they were defending, and their first ball was to him. He'd pivot, play it out, bomb on, and within about eight seconds and three passes, they were often on the edge of the other penalty area. I remember watching very, very dynamic. the Real teams, the Ancelotti team that won in 2014. I think I did the semi-final in Munich. I'm sure that, it, I might be getting my years wrong, but seeing that Real Madrid team with Di Maria particularly play on the counter was amazing to watch. But yeah, I just wouldn't, 
I don't, I don't, that 2012 team, Jose, this will, this will get me banned from all Manchester United press conferences. <laughs> I don't, that team doesn't live that long in the memory for me. The uh, Belgium goal in the World Cup, the, the winning goal um, in their 3-2 victory over Japan right, was yeah. voted the best by the BBC viewers or BBC panel, whoever it was, and that was a perfect counter-attacking goal, wasn't it? So uh, there are others than Daniel who love the counter-attacking uh, goals. So thank you for all your emails and tweets. Do keep them coming. And also thanks for all your ideas about the 100th episode. Uh, Mark Lynch on Twitter says, for ideas for the big 100, how about a surprise reuniting with Chinch and ex-teammates? Particularly some he's spoken so fondly about before. David White, Neville Southall, John Eberle, Glenn Hoddle, Joe Royal, Winnie Doherty. Or maybe Paul Jewell. The Paul Jewell centenary episode. Uh, Dan Cooper says, Andy Hinchcliffe and Rory Smith, amongst others, discuss their favourite 100 things in football. One minute per thing, no repeats, in no particular order. Ooh. Yeah, can we yeah. do that? We yeah, could do special, that. Special two-hour episode of Set Piece Money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, according to Sam at underscore crocked, uh, we could do it at the Manchester Arena in a live show. And also, just finally to round off this section of the programme, thank you to Esurance for giving Dennis Quaid a job. If you've seen that on Twitter, you no. will know that he is now the face of American insurance company Esurance. Is that right? Yes, he's that. He's that uh, he's ba- diverse he's and has Quaid is back. He's back in the game. I am going to change all is of my insurance policies. Is that because he's good, or is that because there's nothing else left for him? That's because he guarantees revenue at the <laughs> box office, Jim. <Ginch. laughs> really? Yeah, Mind does, you, no, hang on. <laughs> you've got Harvey Keitel does uh, uh, direct, direct line. Direct yeah. line. There's another one. Did Eddie Pop did that purple one. Purple. Uh, um, yes. That one. Remember. Yeah, yeah. And there's somebody else, another famous. The weirdest advert at the moment, and I apologise to all of our international list- listeners, is Owen Wilson doing sophology, which you will be able to guess, yeah, and is a sofa company. <laughs> and, yeah. and he'll be. Does he need that money? Yeah, and he'll think that that won't be seen in the United States. So if you are listening in the United States of America, you must Google sophology advert Owen, Owen Wilson and check it out because it is quite the thing. It's extraordinary. Anyway, well in Quaid. Let's get Dennis Quaid on for the 100th episode. At the very least. Can somebody do that, Steve? Thanks. Um, we will talk today on Seppi's Menu about a subject suggested by Stephen Wyeth. Yeah. An, an underappreciated contributor to the podcast, I mm. think. It is this, and it is in no way a coincidence. Football's great shit houses. Does every team need one? It is traditional at this point of a debate to define the terms. So the Urban Dictionary has house described thusly someone who is the epitome of scum the lowest of the low someone with absolutely no morals a person who's just out for themselves and has no regard for anyone else no matter how close they may well be and they offer this contextual example hello mr roberts how are you today i've made you some breakfast off i'm trying to watch jeremy kyle gav you're such a house Excellent work from the Urban Dictionary. I think you'll appreciate. Hang on, uh, where are, we, are we using all these swear words? <laughs> no, we have to. We have to find a different way because I have to edit this podcast a little bit later on. So there are only so many times I can be bothered to put the beep in. So let us find a family-friendly version of house so that um, we don't have to give me hours and hours of slavish work. I thought you'd finally got round to filling out the iTunes compliance for the use of offensive language. <laughs> we, we could do that but we, yeah, and have a little E next to it. But I'm sure we've got lots of young listeners who don't understand what is behind the beep. Um, just so that we can make a second trip to a dictionary of the show, some of the suggested synonyms for shit are poop, defecation, discharge, dung, excrement, excretion, fecal matter, feces, feculence, manure, number two, stool, or waste. Do any of those go well with the word house afterwards? Uh, I think we should go murd maison. <laughs> murd maison. Was there not? Did someone on Twitter not suggest a German one? Uh, they did indeed, um, and I'm, I rather like it. But it may well be that we don't I want to lose the flavour, though. Do we? The real flavour of the 
else. It we is, want to try and keep as much of that as we can. With it the came new term. from uh, David, who says, I actually prefer the German term stinkstiefel. No, it's actually stinkstiefel. Yeah, stinkstiefel. Stinkstiefel. Ah. Oh, let's put a bit of unnecessary German on it. Stinkstiefel. for Wolfsburg. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we can have Stinkstiefel yeah until his contract runs out and then buy it or pick him up on the free yeah ooh so we can have poop house defecation house feces house number two house stool house waste house any of those because uh, we're going to have to be consistent and we're going to have to bring it back many times chinch yeah who, oh why Why me who was the biggest example of this that you played with uh, at Everton the f- oh it's terrible this because oh, there can't be that many players I've thought of about 12 in the last two minutes Ray Atterveld okay the du- do you remember him? Dutch yeah, yeah. kind of right-back midfielder at Everton. What a <laughs> house. The way he treated young players was appalling. And I just thought it's because he's Dutch. But it wasn't. He was just horrible. Right, well, then we've got our answer. We'll call him an Atterveld. An Atterveld. Oh, okay. no, that's going to get me in all kinds of trouble. So it's an Atterveld for Probably the purposes things to be worried about of then, this what? podcast. Uh, perhaps fitting, too, that in the first week of this season's Champions League that we were talking about this, um, as one of the most offered examples of such a player is Sergio Ramos. He was at his housery best in last season's Champions League final. Sorry, his Atterveld best in last season's Champions League final, of course. I th- yeah, I was going to say we should call it Atterveldin is the verb. At- so to he- Atterveld. He has been Atterveldin. He has Atterveldid. I like this. Okay, well, so... That, that's, why th- this, that's why this is such a fascinating topic because as memory serves, if, if it wasn't for Sergio Ramos's Atterveldin, Atterveldin, if I got that right, then well, Liverpool would have won the Champions League, mm. and by extension, Egypt would be the world champion. Obviously, they would have won the World Cup. I'm so not that's, sure that's I'm how significant a contribution they can make. I'm oh, not sure. and Loris Karius would still be the Liverpool goalkeeper. But you're all convinced that Sergio Ramos falls into this category. Well, so I think I'm not. I'm not convinced that he does. Well, so. he was much complained about, but by pretty much everyone else other than Liverpool fans, he is grudgingly respected. Mm-hmm. But is that the only kind of Atavelt? What about the? talentless, tough-tackling midfielder? What about the play-acting duplicity? What about those who then become a coach? Do the recent revelations about Roy Keane's communication style with Harry Arter, for example, uh, prove once an Atterveld, always an Atterveld? And our Match of the Day friend Andy Fraser has gone in touch with Stephen to suggest actually there are two different kinds of Atterveld. An Atterveld house or an Atterveld back? Yes, the Atterveld house is the one that you grudgingly admire the cunning and deceitful professional who will put their morals and fair play aside to win the game. And then the Atavelt bag is the more, the narky so-and-so, the type that would, would poke you in the eye behind the referee's back. You know, that's sort of like butter wouldn't melt in their mouth kind of demeanour mm-hmm. most of the time and then snide when they feel they can get away with it. So effectively, whereas you admire the Atavel House because they'll just two foot challenge the player five minutes into his return from a serious ACL and mm. will make no secret of what they're trying to achieve. The bag, not quite so admirable their conduct. So I would say that the key ingredient to all Atavelding is the snide is the snideness of it. You can have a a brute like Roy Keane was a brutal player, brilliant player, but a brutal player. That's not Atavelding. That's that's being tough. That's you know that's different. You wouldn't you wouldn't have called Norman bite your legs hunter an Atavelt, would you? You'd have thought he's just. I'd have punched you. Yeah, exactly. Mm. He wouldn't he wouldn't have stood for being compared to a foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> would have been deeply insulting. Brexit means Brexit. And I think the other thing that we should say is that all players are capable of it. All ah, players this is what I was, yes. have Ataveldian moments. But I wonder whether another 
distinguishing characteristic here is that good players are fall into the house category yep. and not such great players ah. perhaps fall into the bag category. Yeah. So there's a consistency of bad behaviour. We're all capable of, of behaving badly, Stephen, aren't we? As you well know. Speak for yourself, um, that's the, I'm trying to think. I, don't, I played a very clean career. Very. What are you sniggering at? Very clean career. Well, Hannah, what about that time come? you got sent off? Uh, oh, seven yeah. Seven after being... Calling a lines. Yeah. No, the one b- oh, against Derby where you... Professional foul. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the scything down. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, I tripped the, him. The professional One man's trip foul. is another man's scything down. Well, you but both are offensive. What am, I, what, what am I if I do that? You were a long way away from him when your attempt to trip him yes, started. Yes, granted. But what does that make me? Because Off you know I'm a... No, I'm a yes, <laughs> clearly. Um, but what does that make me? If it's so, if it's, I didn't do that very often in my. If no. it, oh, we're eighteen, sixteen years. You do it three, four times. Does that? What does that yeah, make that me? Did that you just, do it on purpose? At that time, yeah. Yes. Did you do it because you knew that it was better for you to take the red card, yeah. and him not be thrown goal yes. than it was for him to strut? Yeah. So I would say. So I didn't is, do it to injure him. No, no. But that is a prime example of Ataveldian behaviour. <laughs> in the same way, we all talked about how great it is that Guardiola's teams commit lots of tactical fouls. I don't, don't have a problem with it. Straight up Atavelding, oh, that yeah. is. Like that is tactical fouling is the height brutal of Atavelding. In the same way as Paolo Montero wandering about in central defence, raking his studs down the back of your calf when no one's looking. Atavelding. It's, it's got its part in the firmament of the game. This is all th- these are all kind of Ataveldian moments. So we can say that both Bag and House fall under the banner of Atavelding. I would say yeah, absolutely. I would say that the difference with Bag is it's when it's particularly egregious and really sneaky done it's all it's all snide I think the house thing is more when you think do you know even if I get caught this is worth it it's a conscious decision bad much more kind of is it more I'm, petulant yeah a bit more petulant kind of hoping to get away with it assuming no one's watching and done with a bit more kind of malice aforethought I would say so let's talk about some of the players uh, there have been several mentioned already on Facebook and Twitter, and thank you very much for getting in touch. And I think quite a lot of them come from one of those two angles. Is there any player... So Chinch has mentioned Reatvelt, so that's a good start. Um, we've mentioned Sergio Ramos. But hang on, to be fair, I mean, we're, we're gonna, we'll keep on using the term Atavelt, but it just sounds like Reatvelt was a... P- <laughs> <laughs> oh God! So much yeah. beeping, so much beeping. Um, well, he may well have been. In that case, he is an excellent example of an Atavelda yeah. because he Atavelds. Um, but is there any other player who uh, Steve, particularly on Twitter, was mentioned more than others who we could perhaps frame our discussions around and then talk about those who are also examples of this kind of Atavelding? Giorgio Chiellini was a name that came up regularly. Uh, you can't call Chiellini. Is, is, this is really hard to. to talked about without using the, the, the correct term. Mm. You can't call Chiellini a shit house. It's not possible. He's he's tough, he's uncompromising, he'll do anything to win. But there's an element of, like I say, snideness and also kind of cowardice about being a house that Chiellini does not have at all. Well, this is interesting because Chiellini was bitten by a guy who a lot of other people suggested might be an excellent example of an Atavelt, which is Luis Suarez. Is he... An Atavelt. Yeah, he yeah he has an Atavelt street certainly. Yeah. But is he a house or a bag category? <laughs> I think he's more. Yeah, I feel maybe like bag. Yeah, I think he might just be the the emperor of the bag. But, well, because <laughs> I t- and I tell you what it is. So Sergio Ramos is a 
consistent house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you do, ha- you you have to admire that absolutely. You, is he you, king house and Suarez is king back? Possibly because Suarez, for the most part of his game, isn't really engaged in that sort of activity. But every every game, he's you know he's chirping at the referee. He's he's committing sort of very occasional, really sn- snide, sly fouls. And then you know once every couple of years, he bites somebody. And that is <laughs> that that is yeah that's bagging. I do just <laughs> no, no, no we can't. We're that, not can going we? to make a verb out of that. <laughs> I uh, I do disagree with you on Chiellini a little bit. Really? Yeah, because he dishes it out plenty, but he's not quite so great at taking it. And I think that is another mm. sort of like okay. sub characteristic of these sorts of players. Well, I would have said that the archetypal house is Paolo Montero. That's and and there's a, a rich seam of Uruguayan players that you can you can mention and Argentinians who fit into the house category, and they do it. It's part of their makeup as players. Is that it's designed to put the opposition off. It's designed to gain a slight advantage. It's designed not necessarily to hurt anybody, but if they do, they don't care. There's plenty of, of kind of tough tackling Argentinian and Uruguayan central defenders who are houses, and they make it work for them. But I, yeah, I, to me, Sergio Ramos is the, the king of them. And again, Steve is right, because Ramos can dish it out, but as soon as anything happens that he doesn't like, he's the first to complain. Is is there any sort of na- national characteristics that fall into this? Because quite a few that's, people... That's, on, not, that's not a touchy subject I know we've got to be... Uh, Arsus Arctus on Twitter said, surely the long and illustrious history of the Uruguayan school of housery deserves special mention. Yep, I agree. It's part of, the, yeah, mm. Uruguayans and Argentinians in particular are really, are really good at it. What about the, the Italian? I mean, we mentioned Giorgio Chiellini there. What, it goes back to Chirea. Gentile, doesn't yeah. it? And even before then, is, is, is there a connection that we draw about, not necessarily about their national identity, but about the kind of football and how much they enjoy the atavelding of that? So I don't want to upset anybody. And as we all know, Brexit does mean Brexit. But my way or no way. Exactly. And look, no deal is better than deal, apparently, in a process, in process that increasingly... No, nobody been, told Noel Edmonds. ...being hosted by Noel Edmonds, <laughs> who will be Prime Minister soon. But the um, we have this idea in our heads that, that Latin American defenders and Italian defenders are awful cheats and they're always trying to, trying to kick you to gain an advantage. And there's Pablo, Al- Pablo Alfaro, who played for Sevilla, who used to stick his finger up people's areas to, at corners. I would wager that Chinch, as an ex-professional with... Fewer, Where are you going with fewer this? Fewer than eight, but more than six caps for England. <laughs> yes. Is, would stand up this theory that English defenders are just as bad. Modern ones, would we say? Would they do the it? The ones that you played with. I can't imagine that, that Steve Bold and Tony Adams, for example, were not kicking people at corners. Yes, but they weren't sticking their hand up people's right, trouser that, legs. That's an well, ex- Vinnie that- Jones was. Well, those Welsh. Yeah, so that doesn't really hold water. Um, <laughs> but that, that generation of players, we would always say, oh, the, you know, the Italians, terrible, you know, are awful, you know, they, they do anything to get an mm. advantage. And, mm. But, I mean, you play Sunday well, League. We've all, we've all done it. You play Sunday we've League and people it. will pull the pull your armpit hairs <laughs> to call. I've played with people who've done that before, who've reached into your shirt. Well, and shave pulled. your armpits. Absolutely not. No, but it's their fault, though, isn't it? It's their problem, not yours. You, if you want long underarm hair, <laughs> you should be made to shave it because of their bad behaviour. I mean, it was plaited. It was. <laughs> yeah. Beautifully so. Yeah. Chris Walker on Twitter um, asks, can you make sure you discuss how um, Atavelding in culture is linked to the shared histories of the countries that are hotbeds of Atavelding? Um, uh, for example, South American immigrants from poor areas of Europe, um, it's uh, about Atavelding being the only way to survive, for example. It is, it is a cultural thing. Do whatever is necessary. Is that, that is the point made by yeah. Chris But also, Walker. it's considered... 
Was it more considered more of an art form in Italy than it would be in Uruguay? It was the, no, just probably the, the, other, the other way around. The other, round, other way around, maybe. Oh, ah, yeah. right, okay. But I'm not sure. I've got to admit, I'm not sure that holds up altogether. Does that, certainly in Argentina, uh, if you read Jonathan Wilson's excellent, but slightly long, Angels with Dirty Faces, it's it's excellent. It's just don't take it on holiday. The um, it'll hurt. Unless your shoulder. you're Gemma Ferris, she'll get through it. In <laughs> exactly, that's she true. Will. Yeah. Genuinely, a book in a day and a half. Good honour. Yeah. The um, I only read one book in on holiday. I was disappointed. Um, not by the book, by only reading Is one. Is that because it was Angels with Dirty Faces? <laughs> no, I read that ages ago. The um, I'm quoted on the back cover actually. Uh, it's it's okay, really can good, we but not overly just make long. everything about. <laughs> See again, why did you have to mention that? You knew so there was going to be something at the end of it. This Rory book, Smith book, book, oh, is a podcast yeah. atavelt. That's unbelievable. What it is. <laughs> anyway, that that kind of Argentinian Atavelding tradition only really started in the 50s and 60s it came about before that Argentinian football was really kind of romantic and they it yeah it was later on that 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 kind of became the accepted norm that players would do dirty things and independiente and estudiantes with it with the kind of leading lights of it that was that wasn't the first incarnation of Argentinian and I imagine Uruguayan football so it, it may well be related to the kind of issue of poverty and that you you were fighting your way out and you had to do everything to fight your way out but i don't think that's the only explanation well can we can we try and consider the motivation to do it then rather rather than make it a cultural thing mm. amongst uh, a national identity or a cultural identity um can we draw together the strings of all these Atavelts and say, well, this is their motivation for doing it why are they doing it because there's an element isn't there surely of if I can get away with it and it benefits the team, I'm going to keep trying. Are they just doing it on the pitch or are they not Atavelds in real life? Ray Atavelt clearly is an Atavelt in real life. <laughs> but are, do these people live their really lives? He's doubling the family of Atavelds. He does. A long family of badly behaved Atavelds. But do they live? I, I'm a strong believer in the people that behave like this on the pitch and in life, the way that they do that is, is, is them. It's them. It's not necessarily the game isn't making them like that. That's the way they live. Not saying they go to Tesco's and stick their hands up someone's trouser leg to get the uh, the biggest turkey in the shop. I wouldn't say they'd do that, but they are kind of black holes of people, aren't well, they? I would say that if you're using Chiellini as an example, and I would not, because I don't think Chiellini fits that bill, although Steve's point is, is valid that he does dish it out but not take it. Chiellini's a brilliant bloke, by all accounts. Got a degree, really smart, really eloquent, really what you know, really kind of engaged with with life. I'm signed sure up to common goal with Juan Mata. Signed up with to common goal with Juan, Juan Mata. Yeah, you've got to say that, or you'll come around and drive <laughs> over your cat. You know, so <laughs> when's he getting a cat? <laughs> I'm not. I can't. He's not gonna gonna do you see what I'm saying? It's he's not just. Gonna, he's going to rescue the cat, sell it to Rory, and then come and drive it out. No, I so I, I don't think in Chiellini's case that that would be necessarily true. There's someone like Javier Mascherano mm-hmm. who is. A nice bloke, but you wouldn't want to cross. That's probably fair to say, even off the pitch. Who is, you know, he's got a, he's got a, he's got a mind of his own, Javier mm-hmm. Mascherano. So I, yeah, I, I think he probably matches his his off pitch and on pitch personas probably match to an extent. But I don't know if there'd be a pattern there. I think you you often find that the players who are the most narky on the pitch can be quite nice off it mm. Benjamin Tosi on Twitter noticed the conversation that we were having and said reading a host of replies and can't help but notice that a lot of these Atavelts seem to find themselves in senior or captaincy roles Ramos, Chiellini etc could this please be discussed maybe it uh, lends to the idea that yes every successful team does need an Atavelt can you compete with a team of Atavelts if you are not an Atavelt yourself no and uh, there's a lot of teams that are too nice to make that final leap. And the opposite of that team is Atletico Madrid, which is effectively a team of Atavelt. And you wouldn't... Coke is a 
is a snarly little naughty player, not that little, but naughty little player. And uh, Godin, obviously, who is sort of raising Jose Maria Jimenez to be exactly like him. Um, they are a team led by a manager who was the archetypal. In fact, he's probably the best example yeah, yeah. of a proper Atavelde of a player, Diego Simeone. Mm. Which brings us on to another sort of source of, a source of discussion that has, has been prevalent on Facebook and Twitter about this, in that can an Atavelde become a manager? Is there a path from being an Atavelde player to then being able to coach a team? Well, I, I would, would you not say that we're, Sorry, not, we're not sitting that far from a club that is run by a man who admittedly wasn't an Atavelde player because he wasn't a player, but is very much the archetypal Atavelde manager? So, yeah, I, I think it's probably an advantage, isn't it? Just so you know, that's Stockport County. Yeah, who are managed by some, some guy called Terry, probably. <laughs> Do, you Terry Terry Arcastle? <laughs> Do you need to have the ability of, of behaving how you want to behave, doing whatever is necessary and not feeling any guilt and just moving on? So for a manager, if he's to make decisions, whatever he decides to do, he can treat people how he wants to do and then just can just carry on. So surely you have to have that trait, maybe as a player or as a person, to be able to behave that way? Or is it something you can switch on and off? By the way, Jim Gannon, who is the Stockport manager, is a lovely man. Yes, by all accounts he is. I've not met Jim um, Gannon. So n- no Atavelt Street. No, um, maybe I, he's too nice. But I think Chinch is right that you you probably need to have... It's just that ruthlessness, isn't it? That's that's what... what Unifies it all is that players, the players who are doing this stuff, who make, who do it throughout their career, whether it's tactical fouling, complaining to the referee, faking injury, not necessarily setting out to hurt players. I'd say that's something else. What about diving for penalties? Diving for penalties. Is that all the same comes into it's the same. It's all the same category. stuff. Yeah, it's all they're doing absolutely anything to win, and I think that probably is a street that you need as a manager. So yeah, I would say. I mean, Simeone again, perfect example. Which again, I think helps with this sort of distinction between the house and the bag. Is that the house you you have that. You admire it because it it justifies the means that those are those are players or managers who are assessing a situation and working out how best to win the game. And if that means they've got to be slightly morally bankrupt, then so be it. Because yeah. that's what they're that's what they're trying to do. We talked about a lot of foreign players behaving in this way. What kind of English? Have we got any English examples? Well, Darren of Smith on Twitter says this? Robbie Savage gave it out but squealed like a baby when he got a bit back, and and that is the endless frustration with a bag or a house, hey. but particularly a bag is the player that dishes it out, but then as soon as it comes back his way, you know, might flail his blonde locks, you know, hither and thither. Should see him in the gym and I give him the twenty kilo weights, and I accidentally drop him on his toe. He squeals. <laughs> he really does. Next time you see him in the gym with your barley singlet on, I'll tell you why. He's going to he run a mile. That. Yes. Be, no, he'll be jealous. Uh, <laughs> Royal Hoops on Twitter suggested Eric Dyer and Jordan Henderson. Really? I was aghast. Eric, suge- modern yeah. Atavelt. So surely, surely English footballers are above this sort of thing. I don't, I don't associate either of them particularly with being no. that way inclined. No. Uh, what about players who do play in England, though? A name that came up quite regularly is Ander Herrera. Yep. Although what's interesting with Herrera is he's kind of become one. So I don't think he was like that at Athletic Bilbao. And Cesc Fabregas has become a bit of a yes. one as well. Yes. Um, so I don't know if that's England ruining them or whether it's just them developing a side of their game that at the beginning they didn't seem important. Again, it's a part of the fact that they become maybe more senior, a more leadership role, and this is how they manifest it. But it doesn't happen with every player. It only happens with a certain type of player. With Herrera, Herrera you feel a bit sorry for because he's often asked basically to do that job. He's been he's sort of told, you are the terrier midfielder, go and hound people. And if you, if you spend a lot of your time on a football pitch hounding people, mm. you will, after a while, commit quite a lot of fouls and you will get that reputation. Fabregas is quite a good example because that is something that you would not have associated with Fabregas at the start at all. But if you kind of look back through his career, you think, actually, all right, yeah, he, he does have that Atavelde street through him. 
prompting people to get sent off for reacting to something that you do and get away with, but they react to, and it is the retaliation that gets you sent off. That That is that is a very good uh, string to Cesc Fabregas's bow. That's baggery. That's not housing. That is part of baggery. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying they're hounding and making tackles and committing fouls, but th- we're not talking about that because that can happen naturally. Trying to get to the ball. They're actually it's more than that. It's different than that. They actually know what they're doing. Yeah. They're not trying to win the ball. They're, they, they're, they're playing the game in the way that they want to do. So it's nothing like, because of the position that he plays, means that this is going to happen more. He's still going to have it in his head to behave the way that he does. But if you're instructed by your manager to, to break up the opposition's attacks, to stop their counters, you're going to commit a lot of niddly little fouls. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I can't find... Mm. Someone, somebody made the point on Twitter. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't find who it was, who said... And it was almost like that chicken and egg theory. What what comes first, the player or the manager who encourages the player yeah. to be like that? And it's probably a, a, a split. Some are instinctively, you know, you feel like Sergio Ramos doesn't need any sort of encouragement for, for Atavelding. But there will be other players, maybe like Ander Herrera, who has been prompted to fulfil that role because of his position on the pitch and the man who's in charge of the team. Sergio Ramos has had something like 20 or 30 red cards for Real Madrid. Yes, between, yes, more yeah. than 20, certainly. I mean, he's sort of... I think he scored 75 goals, which is extraordinary for a central defender. I mean, it's astonishing. But to get that many red cards... And but, he, been but, he, but he had a lot um, at his previous club at Sevilla, Sevilla didn't he? Uh, he can't have had that many because... He didn't and it was signed like as a 19, 20-year-old. But I think already in his yes. nascent career, it had all been sent up four or five times. But the interesting, interesting thing with Ramos was that when he was younger, it looked like hot-headedness. Now that he's 31, 32, and he's still doing it and is kind of making a... He's almost making a show of it. He wears it as a badge of honour. It's it's clearly developed into something that he does and is kind of proud of, which I would say makes him not only an Atterveld, but kind of a, a self-aware. And what's the word? Um, Does it make you better at doing it, getting away with it, if you know that you're... Well, I, I wonder he's, actually... He's, he started off at a, as a bag and he's now a house. Well, I, think, I think as you get to a certain level of seniority, you probably feel immune to punishment to an extent so even if you get a red card you, you kind of justify it to yourself anyway that mm. it was worth it or you shouldn't certainly at Real Madrid the way that a lot of people at Real Madrid think is is this is a conspiracy that shouldn't have been a red card I was I was justified in doing it it wasn't a foul the but the, the frequency with which, Ramos, with which Ramos does it and I think to an extent in the Champions League final that's why that's why that kind of took on so much traction that people are still talking about it now including Sergio Ramos mm. that there was this sense of this is what he does and he's kind of proud of it. So whether that's, you know, deliberately taking a yellow card in a group stage game to get, to miss, to, to take the suspension so he doesn't miss the knockouts or whether it's kind of being sent off for a stupid foul or complaining to the referee. Ramos does everything so obviously when he tussled with Salah in a situation in which he can't possibly have consciously meant to hurt him. And then you get that outcome. It, people did interpret it as, well, Ramos probably meant to do that because he's Sergio Ramos. And exactly. If it had been somebody else. Yeah, if that had been Rafa Varane, no one would have, would have... Which is perfectly possible. There's nothing particularly abnormal about what Ramos was doing in that situation. They were just holding on to each other. The, if that had been Rafa Varane, people would have assumed that's an unfortunate accident. He didn't mean it. Because it's Ramos, you think, well, look at his track record. So confirmation bias yeah. in terms of how we assess an incident involving Sergio Ramos, but confirmation bias that actually doesn't necessarily upset Sergio Ramos. He doesn't him. mind being known as an yeah. Atavelt. Well, it's like when Spain played England at Wembley. Every time he touched the balls, the boos were ringing around. I bet he absolutely loved that. 
because yeah. again, it's everything's feeding into this, and he's, he doesn't mind it at all. And the success that he's had as well, he's probably thinking, I can do what I want. This doesn't bother me. It actually yeah. raises his game. Well, he's had it the whole time. He was at it during the Champions League draw when he gave um, Salah a little shoulder. squeeze on the shoulder as he walked mm. past him. He, he, I mean, everything that's, just, is... that's just a lovely touch, isn't it? I mean, that really is a lovely touch. Everything. That is the height of Atavelde. <laughs> yes, he's doing it in plain sight, which is why he is the quintessential house of this yeah. discussion. Perhaps finally, how do we consider those who are good players but just are known for being terrible tacklers like Paul Scholes or David Silver has got so many yellow cards because I think it just gets to the point where oh, I'm just going to hack him down because I am David Silver because I am Paul Scholes nobody considers me to be an Atavelt but I'm getting away because of that with some incredible Atavelting Silver I would say is, is a product of in fact, I, well, do you know what? That, I don't have an opinion on Silver. I, that, I never noticed that he got lots of yellow cards, but he it makes sense. He did. He did get. He mentioned, got mentioned a couple of times on Twitter. Paul Strolls, just just an Atterveld. Just an Atterveld. Brilliant, brilliant footballer, yeah. but. Yeah, this, the whole Paul Scholes can't tackle thing. Yes, but he we, can. But we don't consider him he to just, be an Atterveld well, I got, I got, because we love Paul Scholes. Yeah, so there are those who are not known as Atterveld because we don't want to sully yeah, their we don't see it, yeah. status with. But Paul, this whole no other player. Would get away with oh he you know it's him he just can't tackle no I, I other player in the world I got splattered but the, the ball got played to me you see him coming you know full well I'm going to play this you're going to be nowhere near me yet he still goes through you the ball is gone two seconds he still catches it people go oh Paul Scholes just missed timing a challenge no he knew exactly what he was doing maybe it was just me he didn't do it to anybody else <laughs> no no but he did he clearly decided I'm just going to do you yeah and that's it wasn't mistimed or anything wasn't he's not he's such a good player he could, if he wanted to clearly he could tackle properly but at times he just he decided didn't not want to, to. Yeah, yeah he decided yeah. not to i wonder whether skulls and skulls and david silver it's the elegance of the other things yeah. that they do which means they they get away with not being tarred with that brush yeah. but also it's, it must be relatively of all of david silver's contributions to football the number of yellow cards he's picked up is is fairly low low down the list same with skulls it's mm. not necessarily the first thing you think about but with Strolls, it was interesting that he was kind of excused from being able to... Ta- it was sort of all right if Paul Strolls fouled. Yeah. Part of the Paul Scholes thing is that it almost added to his legend. Yeah. It, it yeah. gave him something slightly different. But then also for him, he can, in essence, think, well, the referee thinks I can't tackle, so <laughs> I can do what I want. And they'll think, oh, that's accidental, Paul didn't mean to do it. When actually it was a horrible challenge and he should have been booked for it. Ian Humphreys uh, says on Twitter, David Silver is a sly at a belt. Big fan of that. Um, thank you for all your contributions uh, on Twitter and on Facebook uh, as well. Um, that is our discussion about Atavelding. Should you have any further comments, uh, head to Twitter, to Facebook, or send us an email. Can, at we, at gmail.com. can we get a team of them? We should be able to put goalkeepers. Would they be? Have we got a yeah, goalkeeping Atavelding? That'd be interesting. But if we could put a team together, what a horrible team that would be. We'll have to try and give <laughs> them a name as well. Will we just get Atletico Madrid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> goalkeeper's a really, a really good point. Can Jan Oblak, how is he? No, he's a nice, he looks like a nice fellow. Oh, no, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what Jan Oblak is brilliant at, and it's the goalkeeping equivalent of Atavelding, is late on, Atletico winning 1-0. It's tense. A cross comes in, or a shot. Oblak goes up, saves it, draws it into his chest, Drops to the ground for 10 or 15 seconds. <laughs> yes. that, Jan Oblak is the best in the world at doing that. I suppose the atavelding of a goalkeeper is a time wasting. Yeah. yeah. So what about Jens Lehmann always struck me as someone. Was he a bit of a yeah, an ass? Uh, yeah. Or was he just generally annoyed, Pete? I don't know why. No, he got yes. he he did that thing where he tried to prompt a bigger reaction by oh, yeah. uh, naggling. Oh, niggling, I see. Yes, I see. Naggling. Falls, uh, naggling. I don't know what Michael is. falls into that. That category okay. as well, I think. Okay. Yeah, he, he didn't mind winding up an opponent. But if, if we can get a goalkeeper, sounds sounds like sounds like we've got a part two coming, yeah, which yeah. is yeah. Uh, exciting for the four of us, if nobody else. It's funny uh, how funny how nobody. It's like well, it's, 
we said this before. People get upset about diving. So it's terrible straws on the game. No one gets upset by falsely claiming a corner when you know full well it's an old kick. No one complains about... There's no big campaign in the Daily Mail to stop goalkeepers time-wasting. When there should be. That's a massive issue. It's depriving people of entertainment. I feel like that might be another episode. Yes. And we uh, should mention the, the striker who obviously goes straight into the team, of course, is Diego Costa. Yes. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't get around to Diego so Costa. They, so we, have, we, we got the makings of a team. One yeah. of the reasons we probably didn't get to Diego Costa because we would have just gone Diego Costa and then we would have all in unison gone Atavelt. So it would have yeah. been nice and easy. <laughs> uh, before we go, it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy tells a tale from his playing days, probably about Ray Atavelt, uh, with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. I'll, I'll think of an Atavelt story for another day, but it, it, obviously it happens when a player moves clubs and I went from Man City to Everton and the big money starts rolling in you know the big money serious money what does a player the two things a player normally does they move house and they go and buy a nicer car so I, I did this but in my own way looking back why did I buy this car I went to, up to Bolton and bought a BMW 3 Series Estate in red <laughs> but with Very sensible the most car. sumptuous alloy wheels on this car that was the main reason I bought it. And this is the stories about the alloy wheels. So again, it's not really a Ferrari. It's not really a Bentley. That was me thinking, I've made it here. I've moved on. I'm earning so I can buy. So I got this car. I got it literally the first day. Picked it up. Drove it home. This is when I was with the first Mrs. Hey, H. No, I think it was a bank transfer. Because <laughs> um, I didn't work like that, Stephen. I didn't work back, like that, Bank transfer, everybody. No yeah, I think cash. It was, yeah, it was. Back in the, yeah, did we have them back then? Yes, I think we did. What, cash? So got yeah. this car home. Got my new house in Timpley, newly built house in Timpley, part of an estate. I didn't get it built myself. <laughs> and park it up outside, literally outside the bedroom windows, even though the bedroom windows were on the first floor. It was still technically it's outside the lounge, <laughs> but our bedroom was above the lounge. So the car is parked outside, not in a garage, not in a gated community, just parked, not on the street because it was a cul-de-sac. But the lovely car, bright red, brand new. At which point did we cross the threshold of too much information? Because <laughs> he's telling the story. Okay, fine. So... I was in bed with Mrs. H, just sleeping, and go to bed. <laughs> Sign of a failed marriage, that. Go to bed, do a few sit-ups, go to bed about half ten, <laughs> and then there's a knock at the door at about five o'clock in the morning, and I'm thinking, oh my God, the house is on fire. Something's like, go streaking downstairs, open the front door, and the guy says, your car. And I thought, oh my God, someone's stolen the car. They hadn't stolen the car. They'd bricked the car up and stolen the alloy wheels. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> Seriously. In Timperley. In Timperley, the first night I had this car back, got and it was and there was people walking their dogs. It was like a, a track past, like a um, like a canally thing, and there was people stopping and taking photographs <laughs> of the car. Up, it's hilarious, isn't it? But not for me. I couldn't get to work. But the car underneath the window, how quiet had they been to take the? It had locking wheel nuts. <laughs> how did they get? How did they do that? How do they do that, I these criminals? Know, we would never repeat it because clearly that would but be was, something that could oh, be aged or imitated. Brand new car. You just want to I'll get up in the morning and it be there and be able to drive it. I couldn't drive it. It had no wheels. What was the most footballery car you owned as a footballer? This might be another story that I do later on. It was an electric blue Jaguar XKR with ivory interior. Oh, that sounds awful. But the problem was I had to drive it over the Woodhead Pass, which is between Manchester and Sheffield when I was at Sheffield. So if you're behind the lorries that are naturally on the Woodhead Pass, the front of this brand new, beautiful Jaguar XKR was pockmarked to hell. (laughs) Why did I buy a car like that for that journey? Chinch, you're not somebody who's particularly aware of consequences for your actions. I am. I would suggest that that 
might have been one of those lessons. Did, did you read the, the Peter Crouch interview? You oh, about his you book, were in no. Indonesia, yeah. where Crouch tells this story of, of buying a really sort of footballery car mm. and then think, and thinking he was, when he was at Liverpool and thinking he was kind of the, the big I am and pulling up next to Roy Keane at a traffic light and sort of <laughs> winking at him and smiling <laughs> from this supercar and Roy Keane just looking at, looking, giving Crouch this withering look as if to say, no. And at that point, and Crouch said that he realised that he'd become one of those and oh. sold the car within a week. What car was it? Do you, do you remember? It was a Jaguar XK. <laughs> was it a BMW 3 Series in bright red with no alloys on it? <laughs> Are you alleging that Tr- Peter Crouch stole your car? Why would you? Why would you? If you Just the, the wheels. If you won the lottery, do you? What? What? I know BMWs. They make lovely vehicles. People. They really do. Would you go and buy? What kind of? I was only 22 years old. What 22-year-old in his right mind buys a BMW 3 Series estate? You was thinking this is a status car were you, for me. Were you transporting a lot of stuff around at the no, time? Not particularly. <laughs> 22-year-old no. Premier League footballer goes out and buys family estate. Exactly. Slightly impressive wheels. Oh, what was I thinking? I should have bought the Ferrari. So everybody who has Google right now, put in 1991 mm. BMW 3 Series estate. Cherry red. Cherry <laughs> red. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we leave you with a reminder of how to get in touch at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com or facebook.com forward slash setpiecemenu where the conversations can continue. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory and to Andy and to you all for listening as well. We'll all be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. You know, you know how the people who used to knit car radios have kind of gone out of business because mm. all radios are built into cars. Is it the same with alloy wheels? Can you still take alloys off a car? Or is that... Again, I feel like discussing the way to perform a criminal act is not necessarily... You can take any wheel off a car. Just wondering, wondering, wondering if austerity is really hitting the criminal <laughs> fraternity. That's when, I was, all. when I was in my first house share after leaving university, the, t- the two guys I was sharing a house with went on holiday together. And whilst we were away, one of them had a pride and joy. It was a, a Peugeot 306 or something or other with really fancy wheels. It was his absolute pride. And whilst we were away, he had his wheels nicked off the car. And because I'm a good housemate, I'd already arranged that I would pick them up from the airport. And I was like racked with how to deal with this. Did I pick them up, take them home and, and wait for him to see the evidence of it himself? <laughs> or did I warn him in advance did I you know prepare him for what he was going when we so when we arrived do? back yeah it was pretty much the first thing I said to him as he got in the car at the airport I, said, I do have some bad news for you when we get back your car it's uh, it's on bricks so same same as mine so yeah. that's he knows how I felt when I <gasps> opened that front them, door why it's did they put them on bricks yeah. well so that they it's, they jack the car up so they can get the wheels off so, so, did they take the entire wheel yeah yeah right fine it's not because they're bricklayers who are stealing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, thought they had wheels. some spare brick. Yeah, no. it's, like, it's, it's like a compensation. <laughs> it's their calling <laughs> card. We've they're, got your wheels. But not you s- can build yourself a small wall. They're not, they're not stealing. They're just swapping. <laughs> the, the, the only time that my car has been broken into in Manchester, they they stole about uh, six quid's worth of change and my Manchester City car park pass. Is that right? <laughs> I was like thinking, really? Is that what you're after? And the I remember the Books Fizz CD. <laughs> my mum's car getting nicked when I was about twelve. And it turned up. We this is in the. It turned up two weeks later in Manchester, which is obviously some sort of spiritual home for stolen cars. <laughs> and they'd stuffed the um, the glove box full of cocaine. That's what we told them. That's in my mum's. It's Doctor Smith. You won't believe what these these thieves have done to your vehicle. She, she ran up. Um, said, "I'm glad you found the car. Is the cocaine still there?" <laughs> <laughs> the um. <laughs> uh, but they, they'd stolen they'd stolen one of her 
it was still in the day, days of tapes, and they'd stolen all of her classical music tapes. Yeah, excellent taste in music, and all the all the Brahms and all the Sanson on this. And they'd left all of my Nirvana, and I remember being really offended. <laughs> and my mum having to explain to me that was not the correct emotion to have. <laughs>